Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker Magazine and director of the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Nicole Seeley. She's the executive director at Cave Conum Foundation, and her poetry collection, Ordinary Beast, which was a finalist for the Penn Open Book Award, is also a 2018 Hurston Wright Legacy Award nominee. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So the poem you selected from the archive is Indigo by Ellen Bass. Can you tell us what about this poem in particular caught your eye? I was just immediately struck by this poem. It's not only is it beautiful, but it's so surprising throughout. Um, And Ellen Bass's conversational style, I was really drawn to. Again, the surprise and how, while I was reading, just many of my expectations were just flipped upside down. It's, a, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous poem. I can't really say enough about the <laughs> well, beauty it. of it. Let's hear it. Let's have a listen. Here's uh, Nicole Seeley reading Indigo by Ellen Bass. Indigo. As I'm walking on West Cliff Drive, a man runs toward me, pushing one of those jogging strollers with shock absorbers so the baby can keep sleeping, which this baby is. I can just get a glimpse of its almost translucent eyelids. The father is young, a jungle of indigo and carnelian tattooed from knuckle to jaw. Leafy vines and blossoms, saints and symbols. Thick wooden plugs pierce his lobes and his sunglasses testify to the radiance haloed around him. I'm so jealous, as I often am. It's a kind of obsession. I want him to have been my child's father. I want to have married a man who wanted to be in a body, who wanted to live in it so much that he marked it up like a book, underlining, highlighting, writing in the margins. I was here. Not like my dead ex-husband, who was always fighting against the flesh, who sat for hours on his zafu chanting um, and then went out and broke his hand, punching the car. I imagine when this galloping man gets home, he's going to want to have sex with his wife, who slept in late, and then he'll eat barbecued ribs and let the baby teethe on a bone while he drinks a cold, dark beer. I can't stop wishing my daughter had had a father like that. I can't stop wishing I'd had that life. 
Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. It took eight years for my parents to conceive me. First, there was the war, and then just waiting, and my mother's bones so narrow, she had to be slit and I airlifted. That anyone is born, each precarious success from sperm and egg to zygote, embryo, infant, is a wonder. And here I am, alive. Almost 70 years and nothing has killed me. Not the car I totaled running a stop sign or the spirochete that screwed into my blood. Not the tree that fell in the forest exactly where I was standing. My best friend shoving me backwards so I fell on my ass as it crashed. I'm alive. And I gave birth to a child. So she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder and so much else she didn't get. I've cried most of my life over that. And now there's everything that we can't talk about. We love but cannot take too much of each other. Yet she is the one who, when I asked her to kill me, if I no longer had my mind, we were on our way into Ross, shopping for dresses. That's something she likes, and they all look adorable on her. She's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch as we strode across the parking lot. She said, okay, but when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. That was Indigo by Ellen Bass, which appeared in the October 16th, 2017 issue of the magazine. So uh, I actually didn't know this poem well before you picked it. Did you come on it yourself in the magazine or just looking over it recently? Or In the magazine. I saw it in the magazine, and I, I was struck by the surprise of it. I initially thought that the speaker in the poem was being a bit judgy, looking at this dude with these tattoos, and then she totally flipped the script yeah. and said not, not only is she jealous, but she... That's an obsession of hers. She yeah. doubled down on her envy. <laughs> right, right. And that was, that was amazing. Yeah, and she sort of is desirous, you know, in this way. Yeah. Not just for him physically, but for this life of ease. Uh, exactly. You know, the baby teething on a barbecue bone. I mean, that's yeah. a wonderful primal image. And I think that's something, there's something primal about the whole poem. I mean, she's really... Uh, Invested, and I love the title too. The mm-hmm. title really takes you to a different place. I think you're expecting either something light and airy or something super political, of and she <laughs> manages of to course. bridge the two and kind of uh, the politics of life, of living, of being alive. Yeah, you know, I, I think we're going to get to some of that in your own work, but I wonder how it works here. You know, it seems like there's a lot of shifts for me. There are a lot of shifts, and she does this often. I actually um, didn't know. Bass before this. And I was looking at her other work and I saw this other poem titled Relax. And it's kind of the same thing that you were talking about, the just expectations and how um, the title might not match up with what's coming after. So Relax begins, bad things will happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get hit by a car. Right? And right. so she just... I, mean, I don't mean to laugh, but it's like <laughs> it's like chilling to see someone be so honest or, exactly. or, or so absurd in their exactly. uh, nihilism, let's call it. And so I went down a rabbit hole with Ellen Bass and I just started doing a bit of research preparing for this talk and I came across this, um, the first New Yorker podcast 
was with Philip Levine, and he had actually chosen a poem by Bass. Mm. Um, it was called What Did I Love? And again, it began, what did I love about killing the chickens? <laughs> right. 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 And so she just flips the whole script sure. on the reader. Well, it's very Gimlet-eyed, I feel. And then I think there's that moment where she says, almost 70 years and nothing has killed me. Nothing has killed me. That's another shift to me where she's talking about sort of disappointment and, and, and various things. And then she's talking about, you know, the moment where she gets pushed on her ass yep. um, to survive this tree crashing. And there's a kind of switch from looking outward to looking inward and, and in a way back. And mm-hmm. I think that real shift really is interesting to me in the rest of the poem. The car I totaled running a stop sign. Um, I'm alive and I gave birth to a child, which yes. she sort of held back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so not only is she alive, she was able to give birth to life, mm-hmm. right? She also says, so she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder. There's a, there's a level of regret even in that that later part. What what do you make of that? Um, I feel like even in regret, there's some, some bit of being fortunate. Um, she's definitely saying thank you to the gods for this child who will, if she loses her mind, will kill her. <laughs> right? And right. and isn't that love? Like that's extreme love. Mm. Right? So I think it's both regret and, you know, saying thank you. Yeah. Well, there's a level of mercy that she's thinking about at the end of the poem. And something throughout, she's sort of being merciful in the in the big kind of uh, not just thankful, but thinking of the mercy that spared her mm-hmm. when it hasn't spared others or hasn't spared anyone from disappointment. And I, I think that that kind of human connection is is fascinating. I don't know when it starts because there's so much about the skin, mm-hmm. about uh, the the runner's skin, the father, um, but then also the child with the almost translucent yeah. Uh, eyelids, which I think is really a powerful image and and true, but mm-hmm. you, but I'd never seen it in a poem, which is something that I think poems do is observe the world and make it new again. Yeah, you know, and I I think there's something haunting in that. You probably have passed someone with tattoos or running yeah. or any of the things that she's observing, but suddenly you realize that's a miracle. You know, there's something about that, and it's very everything is just very matter of fact. Even the mention of. Uh, going into Ross and trying on dresses, like that's a very human, very contemporary moment, right, that most people, um, at least I, connected with because <laughs> I love me some Ross. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, but it's just just throughout, it's just so, the whole thing is just very human. And again, reading about her and her work, she said in an interview, a good poem changes me as I'm writing it. And a very good poem manages to change the reader as well. So I was definitely changed while reading it. But I could also, while reading it, see the surprise that she was experiencing while writing it. Exactly. I think that that there's a kind of transparency and generosity in that, in in showing your hand. um, Because it's not coy in a way, which isn't to say it isn't structured and and very uh, conscious and thoughtful. It has a kind of plain spokenness. I, maybe that's another way to put what you said. But um, it's also interested in mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the sweet spot uh, yeah. for me and poets like Lucille Clifton or uh, I think Brooks in her own way in a, in a different kind of language are trying to express you know, much of that, that mix of 
the plain spokenness. Definitely. And the kind of magical, we don't quite always know. Yeah. And Phil Levine spoke to that in the podcast as well. He likened her to um, poets like William Carlos Williams and uh, Walt Whitman and Elizabeth Bishop and others. These are, you know, poets you might want to be compared to. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) One might like that. (laughs) One, I think also there's something... uh, you know, about her writing about women's lives in this this poem that I think is really striking to me, um, mm-hmm. that is really powerful. Yeah. You can definitely see the influence of her teachers, Anne Sexton, and um, her mentor, Dorian Locks, um, talking about women's issues. Um, and I also, in my research, found that she does workshops for uh, children who, who, who have been abused sexually. Um, and so, yeah, these issues are very close to her heart, yet she doesn't play her hand close to her chest, which is like, how can one do that? Because these issues are so intimate yeah. and that she lays it all on the table is mm-hmm. very uh, commendable. Well, and I think it's artful. What I like about the end of the poem, too, is this way that when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. And for I still I go back and forth between thinking that's the daughter saying, that's what I need to know. And then sort of the inner monologue of the speaker saying, that's what I need to know. I need to know when am I here and when am I not here, even though I'm still here. Um, how do you read the ending? You know, I I didn't know how to read it because it's not italicized. It's not in quotes. So I, it Darn can it, go, you know? <laughs> right? It can go either way. So that's a, a question I'll have to pose to Ellen Bass. Well, and to the reader, as you said, the yeah. reader now has inherited this change of the poem. And I, and I think, again, that's a moment of plain spokenness, but the mystery that all the poets we've mentioned, I think, capture well. Uh, let's look at another poem by someone named Nicole Seward. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, in the August 8th, 2016 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, A Violence which you're about to read for us. Is there anything uh, briefly you'd like to say about it beforehand? Anything listeners should know going in? Uh, Nothing really going in. Uh, Where I was, my headspace was such that I had just gotten married and immediately after the wedding, folks were asking, um, so where are the babies? Where are the babies? So this is the headspace. Folks sometimes do. Okay, yeah. A violence. You hear the high-pitched yowls of strays fighting for scraps tossed from a kitchen window. They sound like children you might have had had you wanted children. Had you a maternal bone, you would wrench it from your belly and fling it from your fire escape, as if it were the stubborn shard now lodged in your wrist. No, you would hide it, yes, You would hide it inside a barren nesting doll you've had since you were a child. Its smile reminds you of your father, who does not smile, nor does he believe you are his. You look just like your mother, he says, who looks just like a fire of suspicious origin. A body, I've read, can sustain its own sick burning, its own hell for hours. It's the mind it's the mind that cannot. That was a violence by Nicole Seeley. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper. 
with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, that poem strikes me again um, as sharing some of the qualities of, of the Bass poem. It has a frankness to it. It's plain spoken in places. Uh, no, you would hide it. Yes, you would hide it. Um, there's a kind of self-awareness but also a kind of conjuring <laughs> as the poem is going along. To me, it seems like it starts to open up more even as it's sort of closing in on its subject which uh, is haunting, you know, nor does he believe you are his. You look just like your mother, he says, who looks just like a fire of suspicious origin. Um, And you get that wonderful other voice in there. Uh, Tell us about, you know, sort of the many violences in the poem. I mean, it's called A Violence, but I thought of there were many violences. Yeah. Um, The violence that the speaker has done to herself, Um, the violence that the father of the speaker has done to his daughter, um, the violence of uh, the world and its expectations of women, the mind, you know, the, the, the violence the mind can, can play, can do, can, the mind can harm as much as anything, as much as fire. So again, I'm, I'm just speaking to the moment, um, several moments that I was asked right after getting married, uh, when are the children coming? And it's, um, it's a hard question to answer, right? Because people assume that the person they're asking can actually have children. And if they can, that they want to. And so, yeah, and it's, it's hard to not smile and say, soon come, or, you know, we don't know. Um, but you do that. We do that. So is this poem an inner monologue by the speaker or is it like because there's this great you here yeah you know there's the kind of uh external you know i love the second person as an i or as uh you know they whoever the the figure is i think i might have unconsciously thought i was too close to this poem Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to um disconnect as much as i do in real time when i'm asked those questions about children sure yeah um and this, this poem was very, it was cool to write in that uh, it was very surprising. I'd had the first few lines, and it wasn't until, um, no, you would hide it, 
the Baron Nesting doll came in the picture, and and that was just really surprising for me. You know, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. So um, I was just very excited when that line came to me, and then the rest, the rest followed. There's a kind of humor too. Uh, had you a maternal bone, you would wrench it from your belly and fling it from your fire escape, yeah. and there's the fire again, right? Yeah. Were you conscious of the humor, or you know, and even what the father says, ugh, but at the same time, it's there's a kind of you know, there's a dark humor, as yeah. it were. I don't think I was conscious of it, but I do think that in life um, we ha- we get the light and the dark simultaneously. And that's back to Ellen's poem, um, The Ross, you know, going to Ross and trying on dresses. Even in these moments of, of great darkness, there's lightness, there's levity. Um, and I think that uh, the two can exist at once. And yeah. because I'm not a person who is always in the dark, um, <laughs> some light had to come in. Sure. I think for me sometimes when writing, those lighter things will come in and the temptation is Mm. to take them out and to make the poem one tone. And, you know, of course, the best poems like the blues or something uh, have all those different tones. Uh, And I admire that in in your work. You have that great poem, Object Permanence, which I think has a similar thing. It's not so much humor, but a loveliness where it's kind of a marriage poem, an epithalamian in some way. And it ends with the lines, you say them better than I can. So, Oh, how we entertain the angels with our brief animation. Oh, how I'll miss you when we're dead. That's that's a line right there. <laughs> I mean, because that's a true statement, but people don't say it in poems. They they say, you know, oh, the stars foreverness, you know, et cetera. Um, I, well, I love thank you. That. That's a great compliment. Thank you. I wonder too. Maybe you can speak. You know, I want to talk a little bit briefly just about your book, uh, Ordinary Beast, uh, and tell me how the these poems we're talking about, the kind of poles that I'm mentioning, how they fit into the book as a whole. They fit in because. They're part of me. I created them. Sure. So um, they have the through line is me, is my voice. Um, but they're all very different one from the other. Even the, the poems that are part of series, like the legendary poems, you know, although they're in the series, they're each different one from the other because they're essentially in the voice. Each is in the voice of a, of a person from uh, Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning is uh, a problematic documentary about uh, drag balls in 1980s Harlem. And it uh, features many, quote-unquote, drag queens, uh, female impersonators, and it just really looks at their art, I think, in a very artful way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously... There's a lot to say about that. And of course. do you think, you know, about questions of gender in the book and, and you know, race? and I do. I think about everything. I think about gender, um, gender, gender, and I think about gender roles. A violence speaks to that specifically. I talk about race. I talk about love. I talk about, you know, I have many obsessions. And <laughs> Tell us two we might not know. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> obsessions. That's like, in the book or just personal <laughs> obsessions? Well, let's see. <laughs> let's, let, let's decide. Well, um, you, you know, like you can't see everyone, but she's wearing the most beautiful yellow shoes. Oh, like you're, so you're very hip. So, uh, so fashion is yeah, one of my yeah. many obsessions. Ross. Uh, Ross, yes. <laughs> um, I love comedy. I love humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I love art. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I interned at the Student Museum back in the day when I was like 20 something. The Studio Museum in Harlem, in our, Harlem. our you know, neighbor and friend uptown. Exactly. So, um, yeah, you bring that to the page. And the cover of the book, tell us what that image is. It's a striking image. This is um, an image by the artist Deborah Dancy. And so I wanted to not only have only blurbs by black women on the book, but I also wanted art by a black woman. Um, and of course, Rachel Eliza Griffiths took my my photo for the book, so I wanted this to be a whole um, black women thing. Um, this is before Lemonade, or this, is, <laughs> <laughs> this is, that's wonderful. And Denez is so fun. Denez Smith actually called um, my blurbers the in vogue of blurbers, <laughs> which is hilarious. It's a, a pretty high compliment. <laughs> it is, it is. For <laughs> if both, you know 90s R&B yeah. the way that I know you might, so... For both groups of women. You must. And, um, and y'all must out but there. But this image is is beautiful in that there's so much confrontation happening. Although one of the figures, the black figure's back is turned to the reader, she's di- she's looking directly into the white figurines. And, I th- and these are ceramic figures? C- ceramic figures. Yeah, that she really makes and then photographs, or they're uh, found? She, they're found. She places them and photographs them. Yeah, yeah. There's um, that quality of... Kind of like what would happen if all the ceramics in the antique store, you know, got down to business after hours or something. And came alive, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. That's powerful. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, end with t- telling us just a little bit about Cave Canem, uh, which you direct. And, and tell us, you know, its import is so big, uh, certainly my opinion and, and the opinion of others, you, as an organization, tell us what you all have done, how long you've been around, and, and sort of we all should know that you've shaped the literary landscape, but tell us about of it real course. quick. Uh, Cave Canem is a literary nonprofit. It was started by Toy Dirakat and Cornelius Eady in 1996 to remedy the underrepresentation of black poets in the field. And so we have a flagship program. It's the the week-long writing retreat that takes place in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, at the University of Pittsburgh at Greensburg, uh, wherein 35, 36 black poets come through and they write a poem a day and they get to study with both emerging, their their cohort and establish, their teachers, established writers in the field. Um, you have taught there. <laughs> we were so excited to have you. Um, uh, Claudia Rankine, sure, uh, sure. yeah, uh, Yusuf uh, Komanyaka, everyone, pretty Carl, much, yes. Yeah. And Robin Coast Lewis was there as a guest uh, poet this past, past summer. Yeah. yeah, that was fun. Um, we also have regional workshops, two of which will be happening in sure. fall um, for more uh, emerging poets, sure, of color. And we have book prizes, several yeah. of them. Oh, oh, you do? Really? Yes. The ones that have gone on exactly, to Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think that's what's fascinating is in the prize, I don't know what the record is of people who have gone on to win Pulitzer's. I know of two. Yeah. Are there more than that? I mean, certainly there's many more poets who got their start through the Cave Canem Prize who now are essential to yeah. our thinking of American uh So Natasha poetry. Trethewey and Tracy K. Smith, yeah. both of whom were a Cave Canem Poetry Prize winners went on to win the Pulitzer. And be um, poet laureate. And, exactly. And, you know, other 
folks, Major Jackson, uh, Ricky Laurenti, Natalie list. Graham, Danica Kelly. <laughs> you know, there's there's a yeah. whole tradition. She was up for the National Book Award. Yes. And, yeah, I mean, yes. I think that it's hard to overstate how important Kavikanam has been for broadening the conversation and and bringing people to the table um, who were already at the table yeah. in a way, but uh, but you know, letting them. Uh, you know, recognize in that way that Langston Hughes talks about, you know, I will sit at the table yeah. uh, and no one, how's he put it? No one will, you know, say something to me then. I'm sorry, Langston, I'm getting <laughs> you a little bit wrong. But, you know, that sense of the welcome table, I think, is really Definitely. important and, uh, and, and making sure we understand the many influences, too, that come in there, the door and also that you know, are able to look around and see what's what's new and what's exciting in yeah. poetry. And this was just an idea. Like, it was just an idea, and it became a thing. <laughs> it's like a revolution. <laughs> thank you, Toy. Thank you, Cornelius. Yes, yes. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here and talking with us, Nicole. It's my pleasure. A Violence by Nicole Seeley, as well as Ellen Bass's poem Indigo, can be found on NewYorker.com. Ellen Bass's most recent poetry collection is Like a Beggar. Nicole Seeley's latest book is Ordinary Beast. Thanks again. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is... The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropa Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.